Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The Sewer Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. Hello, this is 8.55am 3CR and um, you're listening to The Sewer Show right now with uh, the Doing It Ourselves crew. With Anissa on the panel, um, my, myself, uh, Jam, and uh, we've got two uh, guests in today. We've got um, one who is uh, going to be potentially our new uh, news uh, reporter for the show, um, so maybe you can introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm Janko, uh, studying journalism here in Melbourne, and um, yeah, the folks have just asked me on to do a bit of uh, news reporting, and yeah, hopefully I do a good job and they invite me back. Yeah, oh, Absolutely. Fully excited for that. And um, another one is a, a young activist in Melbourne who's recently been doing some um, DA stuff. Uh, maybe you can introduce yourself real briefly. Uh, hey, everyone. My name's Elle. Uh, I'm studying geography at the moment and spend a lot of my spare time um, community organising. Um, and, yeah. Nice one, nice one. So I wanted to start off today's show with an acknowledgement of country. So just wanted to, um, yeah, acknowledge that... Um, the lands that we're on right now, which is the um, Bunwurrung and Woiwurrung nations. Um, yeah, these these nations have been um, overtaken by um, colonialist political, um, yeah, military. And um, that is that has resulted in a, um, yeah, unfortunate colonization of this, of this land. We really want to pay respects to the um, people of First Nations who are amazing, um, you know, putting up amazing resistance to, to this colonization, which is um, the elders past, present and emerging. And we really want to pay respects to those people. Um, and we do want to acknowledge that, that yeah, there was, um, yeah, this, this sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and um, yeah, we all, um, yeah, encourage us to think about that and um, reflect on that in our decolonization in the future um, within our activism, but also within our lives and our times on this, um, on this land of Bunurong and Woiwurrung country. So yeah, maybe to start off with, um, yeah, just as we said, we've got a, a reporter on today. We're going to do a bit of um, a bit of a, a roundup on like what has happened in this continent so far, in particular, like reference to the fires that have like kind of come through and ravaged through people's homes, but also like you know the native habitat of um, so much um, you know already um, fragile ecosystems that have been damaged um, due to the way we treat you know, the earth at the moment, this, this, this fire has kind of come through and it's been burning for ages. And, and I think it's really important that we like hear about that, hear, hear some details, hear about the facts, hear about like, you know, what's been said by different um, political parties and what their responses are, both in the past and in the, in the future. And so, um, yeah, we'll talk a bit about that. And then, um, yeah, we'll have a bit of a, a chat with Elle, who's, um, yeah, who's who's come up in the in um, environment movement at the moment, um, and really, um, yeah, so some solid um, 
yeah, solid DA and and really put you know put a line in the sand and said no, actually this this stuff can't continue um, for so many reasons, um, particularly due to like the effects of like climate change and um, you know all, all the things that we do on, on this on this planet that really um, yeah really affects only, not only people um, but all all living um, all living things on this on this planet. So yeah, we'll have a chat about that and hear about their journey and their story, which will be really exciting. So stick around um for that for that chat in the last half of the segment um but for now maybe we'll go straight to janko and and yeah hear hear the reports on on this uh this really important issue totally thanks so much jam um so in thinking about uh, coming on today there was really only one subject as you know the first show of the year that i really felt was even appropriate even touching and that was obviously the fires um which have only in the last week or so been under control uh, which have been burning out of control ever since september um, and, you know, in, I don't know about everybody else, but, you know, in the, in the high intensity news cycle we all live in, um, you know, it's starting to recede further and further from your memory. But it's just such an ongoing crisis for uh, so many communities around the country, uh, obviously an ecological disaster. Um, and I think it's important that we do reflect on that and, you know, keep that in my, our mind, you know, presence of mind, as you were referring to before, uh, about, yeah, the ongoing crisis here. Uh, so ultimately, um, just, you know, from a uh, pure uh, statistical look at it, uh, 33 people have lost their lives over these past six months. Um, and in the, your story and the, all the politics and everything else that can happen around that, I think that's really, really important to keep in your mind. 33 people. Um, and over 1 billion animals have also lost their lives over this point. Um, I think uh, you know a lot of news and stories have been told around the ecological disaster affecting koala habitat in particular. Um, there were some reports earlier on that uh, one person went out on a limb. I can't remember exactly who they were, but made the, ex- uh, the claim that koalas were functionally extinct. I'm not sure if you remember that being in the news at all. That had been re- rebunked, uh, debunked, sorry, and a few other experts I had read about said it was irresponsible to make that claim, but uh, not to take away from the severity of the habitat loss that have, they have um, been facing, particularly in New South Wales. Um, overall... 8.6 million hectares of land has been burnt over this uh, last six months or so. To put that in perspective, that's an area the size of somewhere between Belgium and South Korea. Um, again, probably difficult to get in your mind the size of that, but uh, these are you know whole countries that we have been have been lost across the continent. Uh, also, to put in perspective, other global fires as well. Um, the Amazon fires, obviously, huge tragedies uh, under themselves, uh, and also pro- potentially fueled by a similar climate and action uh, with similar governments over there uh, were 906,000 hectares as opposed to 8.6 million hectares here. So it's just that magnitude of wow. uh, yeah, magnitudes above all of that here. Uh, in preparation for this, uh, for the, the show today, I tried to speak to at least a few communities that were affected and uh, to understand, try and understand a little bit more about what it's like on the ground there. Um, I managed to speak with a few of the media team from the Batesman, Batemans Bay Bushfire Recovery Centre. Folks down there, are, as you can imagine, doing an incredible job. Um, I didn't want to take up too much of their time because they're on the ground providing uh, essential assistance to people who are still struggling with all these uh, with the recovery process. In that community alone, uh, they've lost 493 homes. Um, Yes. That's uh, it's just staggering, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely crazy. And just it's not a very, very big town, but uh, in that area by itself, obviously one of the hardest hit in the entire, uh, in the country. Um, in that area, uh, uh, 343 hectares 
was destroyed alone um, in their bushfire recovery center. They've had more than 3,000 registrations for ongoing assistance um, within that uh, within that community. And they're still finalizing a lot of reports. Um, they were on the ground, I've been assured, they were on the ground making those reports before, you know, while large pockets of the community were still burning. But they, they were out there trying to uh, get a handle on it uh, as quickly as they could. Um, and in, in these sort of um, recovery centers, uh, they're doing a lot of outreach, I've been told, um, through the Rural Resilience Program, um, which is, you, you know, you, residents can register for these uh, services or they also are uh, doing roaming services to people who are not able to reach those areas. Um, and so Rural Resilience Program is one of these mental health uh, services that are provided to uh, people who are affected by it. Um, and some reporting that was uh, found out by a colleague of mine at uh, uh, school, uh, Chelsea Nickel, um, informed me that 26% of people were showing signs of PTSD following the Black Saturday fires. And this is just one statistic about one fire, but we can only imagine that this applies to uh, most communities and most people who do face up with these uh, incredible disasters as well. So obviously financial assistance, uh, structural assistance, but, you know, it's so important to deal with people's mental health when they might have lost, you know, 433 homes in this uh, in this community. Um, it, just looking after people's mental health is just as important in many cases as well. Um, and it also got me thinking as well about the, the, the interesting and, you know, potentially concern for rural flight from these areas. Um, a lot of rural areas, as we know, um, wealth disparity in parts of in Australia between cities and rural areas is growing and is quite severe. Uh, and the, uh, you know, suffering of these rural communities is a real concern in, uh, in this uh, time. Um, there are concerns of people just taking the insurance payouts and not saying that this is happened, but is a concern. This may lead people to leave these communities and uh, not return. So I know a lot of communities uh, and councils are going to be having to put in place a lot of um, uh, policies and incentives to try and keep these communities uh, alight in such uh, challenging times. Um, the government will announce, uh, might have done so recently, plans to encourage backpackers. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the famed um, farm-picking uh, working visas uh, is now going to be potentially extended to include uh, backpackers uh, venturing out to rural communities to assist with the recovery, but also encourage them to be in those communities, bring their... Uh, time, the energy, but also importantly, their money to try and prop up these communities as well. Um, I did, um, in, once I did learn this, my initial reaction to it was one of like, that's quite a grim reality. And unfortunately it is, but uh, the few uh, backpackers that I had spoken to about this um, said that they were actually quite interested, well, not interested, but w- would be potentially happy to partake in such a, or participate in such a program because they felt that they, that was a real way to involve themselves in a the community and give back to a country that they would like to see. So um, cool. potentially not a, you know not necessarily a bad idea um, on behalf of the government there. Um, obviously, it's uh, a pretty well, grim reality, but um, one that people may may in, indeed be open to. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really important factor that like hasn't been really explored, or at least to me anyway, is like that issue of like you know there's the the burning and the recovery. But then it's like, are these people going to want to recover in these towns anyway? And like you said, leaving and these towns just never getting back on their feet again. Like that's mm. a, that's a yeah, like you said, a grim reality that, yeah, things to be talked about. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's just going to be left to be seen. Well, I, you know, <laughs> some communities have just been totally raised to the ground um, and we'll just have to see what the recovery is uh, along along that process. Um, I also thought I'd look into a bit of the history uh, leading up to the fires. Obviously, um, uh, 
the government's response was caused quite a lot of contro- uh, controversy uh, regarding their inaction and uh, action slash inaction and the steps they took throughout the process. Um, so in the lead up to the fires, remember these most most of the major blazes start in September. Um, Twenty three former fire emergency leaders in November. Um, from the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, uh, announced that they had attempted to meet the PM shortly after the election in May and again in April to ask for increased funding for water bombers and for rural services, fire services throughout the country. Um, and this is just because they knew historically and from, you know, historically they just knew that this was going to be a particularly bad season, which obviously ended up being. Uh, and these reports apparently were, oh, sorry, uh, requests for a meeting were repeatedly ignored. Um, uh, up until they just had to take matters in their own hands and just address the um, address the media and tell and just try to get the message out through the media directly to the public. And so this became a really big story last November. Um, the, uh, the government would try to backflip and say, oh, we try to take care of it, but there was just no evidence of, of that meeting ever taking place. Uh, and in addition to this, not only were they not meeting, but uh, there was budget cuts to rural and or to rural and fire uh, services across the country, the Liberal government in uh, New South Wales cut 12.9 million in expenses to the fire and rescue, uh, while uh, the federal government as well cut potentially as much as 40 million um, in its funding directly to New South Wales. A lot of these figures around New South Wales, of course, but um, th- yeah, in trying to fact check that amount because obviously it's a, a huge amount. It was a contentious issue um, or a contentious amount, but um, uh, some people saying that it's a uh, some reports saying that's a cut from a very high of the previous year and also not taking into account inflation. But whatever the amount is, it is in the tens of millions, uh, particularly in a time when the country needed it most, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, uh, <laughs> it's difficult not to... Uh, I'm sure you remember the, the backlash of the or the blaming on the Greens of the backburning. I thought I'd address that myth um, in the, the history of the backfires here as well. So many conservative politicians uh, were just going on about how it's the Greens' fault for not backburning throughout these fire, uh, throughout fire hazardous areas, um, which I'm sure like, most listeners wouldn't need me to tell that is uh, baseless, uh, aside from the fact that they're blaming a party that was never actually in government and had no control over the area. Uh, on top of this, just like uh, the bare ba- uh, facts of backburning means through climate change the window that uh, backburning is actually applicable and able to be done is shrinking year by year uh, particularly when most of these uh, services or uh, yeah, rural fire brigades are run by volunteers um, weather conditions have to be right and we're relying on volunteers to do it on their weekends time that they have by themselves uh, sorry they can give um, on top of the you know amazing job they do year round anyway uh, to say it's the greens fault for Burning when it's just circumstances uh, and circumstances that are not even within their portfolio or that, that they have no control over is is really quite uh, quite silly. Uh, on top of this, I'm not sure if uh, other people had heard the other conspiracy point uh, or conspiracy topic uh, peddled by a lot of conservatives as well, being the notion of the Indian Ocean dipole. Have you heard about this at all, Jim? Uh, I've heard about it. I studied it a little bit in bioscience, but uh, please update. Yeah, give us the download. Well, in a real rundown, I'm just looking at my notes here, and I've written far too much for me to actually explain to you uh, succinctly with my level of uh, environmental knowledge. Uh, <laughs> but basically, uh, it was the thought. It's based, in a nutshell, it's the uh, Indian Ocean equivalent of the El Nino and La Nina uh, weather patterns. 
Um, and when it is in one particular phase, they have three phases, positive, neutral, and, and negative. When it is in a uh, positive or neutral phase, it leads to, or positive phase leads to uh, very dry conditions here in Australia. Conversely, very, very wet conditions in Eastern Africa, which if we look at what's happening over there now, they've had, at the same time as we've had record droughts, they've actually had unprecedented land, uh, sorry, uh, uh, rainfall leading to flooding. And now swarms of locusts, which are eating up food supplies and cause potentially leading, I haven't done too much research into it, but potentially leading to famine in that part of the world as well. So when, you know, people are saying, oh, it's the natural weather patterns, it's the Indian Ocean Diapole, this is correct. It does have an influence on it. Um, And indeed, uh, last time we saw similar um, situations like this was uh, uh, in 1982 when it lined up with uh, unfavorable weather conditions with the El Nino Pacific Ocean system. Uh, It was in 1982, which led to uh, the Ash Wednesday fires and uh, a very, very poor uh, system there, but uh, sorry, fire season there. So there is truth. If people are saying, oh, it's just the natural season, Australia always uh, is in drought, uh, this is true. And, you know, that it would have been a bad season regardless. But um, again, just the level, the unprecedented level of fires that we have seen and unprecedented drought is just evidence that it has been exacerbated. Natural conditions and patterns are just exacerbated so much by climate change. Uh, so I hope I've uh, that, that 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 that's clear. That's uh, it wasn't too confusing of an explanation at all. No, that 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 rounds it up for us. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, yeah. thanks. Um, yeah, and then uh, I don't know if I, I've got a few more things as well. Uh, how have we going for time? Going, yeah, going good. Going yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so I thought it t- on the notion of you know um, conservative uh, talking points or conspiracy theories about this as well. Um, News Corp, of course, um, very very famous for uh, trying to pin this entire. Uh, well, at least most of the fires and the crisis, not on global warming, as we uh, all know, has been a contributing factor too, but largely on arsonists. Uh, were you following any of these stories at all, Jim? Uh, no, no, um, I've I've heard of these things. I, heard, I hear every now and then you hear about these arsonists are the, are the primary cause and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I haven't looked into the into the depths of the issue. But I'd I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, well, if you were to follow the uh, Australian in particular, you would learn that, uh, or you would think and be excused for thinking that uh, these this massive continent-wide bushfire season is almost exclusively to do with uh, the uh, actions of few arsonists. Um, you know, in one story, they claim that uh, 183 arsonists have been arrested for the year, uh, make, within the year, uh, making the claim that these arsonists are directly related to or responsible for these fires. Now, <laughs> if we just look at Victoria by itself, 43 of those um, that were inadvertently or indirectly linked uh, or blamed for the uh, fires themselves were actually arrested for the year ending in September. So this is for the 12 months leading up to September, um, months before the uh, worst phases of the uh, the fires themselves. So if we take that out of account, it really just needs to, uh, does make you doubt that uh, the rest of that figure there as well. Um, and of course, uh, on the... <laughs> Uh, December 16th and 17th uh, last year, where Australia, in two days in a row, beat the hottest day uh, record with 40.3, 40.9 yeah, 40. degrees on uh, Tuesday, the 16th of uh, December, uh, to be broken the very next day 
by an entire degree of uh, average temperature across the continent of 41.9 degrees on Wednesday. Uh, the top story on the front page of The Australian was actually a lifting of the uh, lockout ban in uh, Sydney. Hmm. So obviously very important news for Sydney siders. I'm sure they want to go get a drink as soon as possible uh, in that sweltering temperature before an international newspaper. Uh, maybe uh, there's more important news to be uh, discussed there. Um, such stories like this led to Emily Townsend famously uh, the Commercial Finance Management News Corp, to resign uh, and to write a letter, a public open letter to uh, News Corp um, publicly admonishing them for their handling of climate science and scepticism and, and all these things. Um, saying in the letter, basically, I find it unconscionable to continue working with this company knowing I'm contributing to the spread of climate change denial on lies. The reporting I've witnessed in The Australian, The Daily Telegraph and Herald Sun is not only irresponsible, but dangerous and damaging to our communities and beautiful planet and it needs us more than ever now to acknowledge the destruction we've caused and start doing something about it. So for such a senior member of uh, News Corp staff to be um, publicly uh, making such a statement is really quite strong. This is an, an on top of uh, James Murdoch, um, Rupert Murdoch's oldest or I think oldest son, uh, one of his sons, I won't say that, one of his sons also criticising publicly in mid-January as well the, the paper's uh, approach to climate policy. Um, I think there's really just... Uh, the tide hopefully is changing. Um, other conservative politicians... Uh, sorry, uh, conservative uh, journalists within the organisation... Slowly starting to come round to the notion mm. that they're they're on a they're on a losing issue here, um, and this is really one of the narratives of this bushfire season. Like obviously the intensity, but like it's everyone's saying it's a turning point, it's a real uh, line in the sand sort of moment. And if we're having you know even News Corp journalists starting to begrudgingly acknowledge uh, that there might be some uh, they might have made some mistakes, that uh, it's this may be the turning point that we're all hoping for, mm. which I think is quite. I mean, something that I've seen that's come out of that is new campaigns like Boycott Murdoch um, mm. and increased protests outside of the, you know, Herald Sun and other offices, which mm. is really interesting because that's kind of, it is a touch, you know, to protest, you know, journalism can be quite a touchy issue because, totally. you know, people get a bit worried. They don't want to be seen to be silencing different points of view, mm. but it's kind of, you know, this has been so clear and because people inside, you know, those corporations are saying this is not okay, that it's kind of creating more space for the public to kind of openly talk about this. Mm. Um, and, and I guess bring that damage, you know, that brand damage even further. And so now we're seeing things like, you know, cafes that refuse to have, you know, Murdoch newspapers in mm. them and that the sort of stuff. Mm, absolutely. I enjoyed, uh, I think, the, the protests outside the Sydney offices saying, stop your lies, and they were laying down in the middle of the street. Um, mm. Clever pun there. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, very, very good to see. Um, um, and I think I heard about in Brisbane, in fact, there were a group of people that got a, um, a trailer full of manure and dumped it out the front of the office to, you know, stop your... I, mean, I don't think we're allowed to swear, but you can imagine what <laughs> you know what they were saying with that message, mm. putting a bunch of yeah manure. Oh, I hadn't heard of that. That's uh, that's quite a bold step, isn't it? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's it's really good to see um, this type of stuff and this pushback on the media, particularly um, these people that have a responsibility of you know that the community relies on as delivering facts. And mm. when um, the community starts to see, okay, this is not what these 
um, organizations are doing. Um, it's really good to see that pushback. Like we've heard of Sydney and Brisbane, I think Melbourne last year, there was also um, a group that of people that went and protested at the Herald Sun and you know, I, yeah, tore up yeah, newspapers and threw them around like in the, in the foyer and stuff like that to really, um, to show that, you know, what that, um, what pretty much all that paper is good for, um, mm. which is, you know, Almost. it's, yeah, it's, it's really good to see that there's, there is a pushback from the community on, on these things. These, these, these industries do have to be held accountable. Um, if you're delivering yourself as a place of news, you know, you're not, you're not delivering yourself as, as a place that, that tells stories, you are supposed to be delivering facts. And I think that um, hopefully, yeah, there's some way that these media um, organizations will be held accountable in the future because they have steered the public debate and the narrative of this issue for, for decades. Absolutely. And, and it's, and it's, it's really sad, but um, thankfully there's, there's a bit of turning of the tide. Um, we might um we might um yeah have a bit of a uh, a bit of a break with a bit of a song. Thanks. So, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on and giving us those facts. It's really important to know. I think like with the politics and and people in, involved in left, like it's really important that we embrace like what we feel is like the ethical choice and the right thing. But also it's got to be backed up with like the actual hard evidence as well. And really appreciate you doing all that research and and presenting that to our to our listeners. So really appreciate that, Jenka. No, thank you. It's been running around my brain for the last uh, three months anyway. So it was good to actually have it all out and uh, in one place. So thanks so much for having me. Amazing. Amazing. Awesome. And Jenga, did you want to introduce the next song? Yeah. Um, been listening to this uh, British artist, Kate Tempest, recently. Um, she played a show in uh, Melbourne on Tuesday. It was absolutely fantastic. And this is a song by her, Unholy Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bangala country. BHP is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The radioactive exposure tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Foe's Nuclear Free Campaign is a 3CR supporter. Hi, you're back on the air with 855 AM 3CR. We're on the sewer show doing ourselves crew here. Uh, we just had a awesome uh, segment about the fires with Janko reporting, and now we're uh, we're going to have a bit of a, a time for storytelling about uh, activists in um, here in um, yeah Bunwurrung Woiwurrung country. Um, L, how you doing? Hey, um, yeah, I'm great. Yeah. How are you going? Pretty good. I'm doing well. Um, we just um, yeah thought it could be a good opportunity here and really appropriate to talk about um, your journey into activism and what that was about and um, how it led to an action that, um, yeah, really tied into the fires um, that were ravaging the country at the time, which was just, um, yeah, that you you were involved in um, Mm -hmm. early this year. So um, maybe we'll like start at the beginning for you and just like hear like, how did you get involved in um, activism? Like when, you know, obviously at some point you were just, um, you know, like all of us going through day-to-day life you know, and you're probably politically active in some degree in, in your mind and, and, and um, in your actions. But when did that and how did that come across in terms of like actually 
you know, engaging in, in activism? Um, well, I think it all started with me engaging more in like politically charged activist spaces, um, even just like attending rallies and spaces that were dedicated um, to discussion and like the community coming together um, to make a statement. Um, for me, like at a time, like that was an incredibly new experience. And I think really quickly, I just noticed within myself like a swell of really empowering emotions and emotions that um, really quelled previous feelings that I had had, such as like apathy or like isolation or hopelessness. So um, really like the second I started engaging in the space, I was just kind of swept away um, and just like followed what felt great. And I think it's just what I needed at the time um, because obviously with issues such as climate change, um, but also like homelessness or any like systemic issue it feels so overwhelming so I think the second I entered a space with other people um everyone was facing that together um that was kind of it for me um no turning back and yeah I think after attending a few spaces like that quickly I just started like building relationships with people who really cared about building those relationships also and um before you know it, like the networks just kind of were there before me and I just kind of explored um, like what tactics felt good um, and what resonated with my own like values and how, how I think um, systemic change can come about. Um, so, yeah, that's probably yeah. how the you, door opened. You mentioned like a thing there that I think is really common and I hear a lot about, um, you know, that feeling of like almost like hopelessness and like, you know, feeling resigned to like all this bad stuff that's going on. Like, do you think like for your journey, there was, there were things that like helped you get over that line into like this, like from, from getting to a point where like, okay, this is all just too much. And I'm feeling really not hopeful about the decision to actually, I'm starting to feel hopeful. And I feel like I can start personally making a change. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, Certainly, like, entering a community. I think isolation was probably one of the most, like, jarring feelings for me, like, being in spaces where it was too... There was too much grief to talk about what was going on. So I think, um, yeah, getting over that feeling of hopelessness, like, a massive part of it was feeling like I didn't have to face it alone. And um, because, like, as an individual, like, that feeling of hopelessness makes sense. Like, we, as individuals, can't... Um, like we, as a, as a species, we've never done anything as individuals. Like we're meant to be connected, to contribute to one another, to share. Um, so I think just relationship building and facing that with people that I was like forming trust, like relationships rooted in trust with, um, was a massive part of that. And also, I think expanding my imagination. Um, I had like a very specific and rigid understanding of the future as just something that was absolutely doomed and that was just like just like this abstract feeling of doom um but then I realized that like the framing in my mind that we're fed isn't like a fixed reality and like there's so much uncertainty about the future but you can also use that that flexibility as something to be empowered by um and to realize like we're already in the midst of it, I guess. And it's something that's going to be, it's not something that's going to necessarily be a certain way. Um, 
and that there are ways to organize around like our immediate environments and that like alternative futures are possible, like forming more community, um, becoming less like dependent on heaps of systems, like whether that be like the food system, like, like supporting greater autonomy in communities. Like there are so many ways to build resilience now instead of, um, feeling like everything in the future is set in stone. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I think kind of realising that the framing that I had was something that was fed to me and something that I can't be sure of and letting that inspire me to create change rather than stifle me and stagnate me. Amazing, amazing. Um, Now, you've, you've, you've ventured into activism into a particular field of activism from my knowledge which, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it, like it's known within um, a lot of activist circles as DA, but really, you know, that stands for direct action. Mm-hmm. Um, when you got involved with these communities, what led you down the path of that particular avenue of political activism? Um, a deep-seated cynicism in government leadership um, on any, like, issue, um, any issue, full stop, um, because, like, the decision makers are going to be the least impacted by the decisions that they make. They're not um, like frontline communities. So like the decision, the decisions that are made are never going to be sensitive to the needs of like communities on the ground. Um, And there's like such a concentration of power within like the political process that there's so much room for corruption, um, which we can like clearly see with the entanglement between the state and like the mining industry, for instance, and extractive industries. Um, Yeah, so I think personally, um, I guess I don't want to reform the system also because I don't believe that a state so deeply rooted in like colonisation and industrialisation and capitalism will ever prioritise ecosystems over profit. So I don't think it's like a valid use of capacity to ask nicely. Um, and yeah, with, with direct action, I think it's just one of the most empowering ways to utilise your capacity because you just circumvent that whole political system and basically skip the steps in the middle um, and you can manifest the future that you want to see for a certain period of time. Like if you don't want like extractive industries in your future for six hours, like you can block an artery in Australia's extractive industry. And in that, like that's huge. And the accumulative efforts of like direct action, whether that be blocking something or building something new, um, like uh, food, not bombs or something like on the ground. It's like so much, so much transformation is happening simultaneously and it's accumulating over time as well. Um, So yeah, I just really enjoyed like taking control and like um, I think that really appealed to me. And also with the direct action, it's like a form of prevention and defense as well, instead of just response to an issue, um, particularly like with the fires, there's been so much emphasis on like the response to it, which is only natural because like it happened and like recovery is needed. But, you know, the next fire season is going to come and business as usual is continuing. So how are we going to ensure that the groundworks aren't being laid for this to continue and exacerbate into the future. And for me, like the answer is direct action and just making it physically impossible um, for certain processes to happen for a certain period of time um, and to make these industries and practices less profitable, less smooth um, and less viable. And um, yeah, I guess that from my understanding that led you to um, 
a travel up north, up to Queensland. And um, yeah, you talked about um, choking out a, a coal mined artery, I guess, over six hours. Uh, very well put. Um, I was just wondering, yeah, if you want to talk a bit about that, like your exploration of like, you know, that journey up north. And there's a camp up there, as I'm aware of, like that um, supports activists coming up to, to hear about the stories about what's going on up there with the coal mine. And then there's also, um, yeah, direct actions going up there as well by communities. So, yeah, do you want to talk about about that a little bit? Yeah, so I went up um, around Christmas or New Year's as the fires were breaking out. Um, yeah, it was a really, um, like, unique thing to do. It was a very unique, like, experience for me. Um, and it was very empowering to, um, like, I guess, leave the city um, and go to as close as I could get to the Adani mine. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it was a really like beautiful space to be in, um, with people who were also like have similar values. And then like post leaving the camp, some of us did get together and we did do an action. Um, do you want me to go into the action specifically oh it's it's up to you i guess like yeah it would be cool to hear like if you wanted to talk about it like what you actually did there like you know you you mentioned um you know actually um getting some some you know direct action as as a form of your activism so just wondering um Mm -hmm. yeah what did you actually decide to do with that how did you decide to um yeah embody that direct action yeah um so a dear friend and i um locked on to a concrete barrel um on the in the corridor to the Abbott Point coal terminal and on a train, a coal train and a Ryzen coal train, which was going to Abbott Point. Um, so, yeah, we were there for around six hours um, and, yeah, naturally, like, um, the like they worked to remove us for that entire time and it was a really long process. Um and yeah, that was that was basically the action that we did. How'd you, um, how how did that feel? Like like you know, sitting there, um, you know, on the tracks of the of the coal port with the you know stopping the coal coming in. Like, what was, what was going through your head? I guess in, in you know both in body and mind and the emotions. Like, what what was that feeling like for people that may never have been in a situation like that before? Mm, it's it's really interesting just being like in a space that feels just like a normal road or like a normal area but like it's it's just connected to something so like to such a turning point in human history like the operations that are going on like just a few kilometers away are so significant and it's something that has been like there's been such a grassroots movement against it it feels quite unreal because you're just like there um just hanging out really and um honestly like it was it was quite like a comfortable experience because I was there with someone that I trusted and I had like a lot of support so even though um like it was direct action it was something that I was very comfortable with and very um it was honestly like quite a pleasant experience um yeah Yeah, Yeah. amazing yeah yeah um yeah that's amazing and I did hear like yeah, to give some more imagery to people listening to understand, like this is a um, yeah, there's a huge coal port owned by Adani, 
um, that's just north of Bowen. And so, you know, these full coal trains are riding in and then one day, you know, people wake up and all of a sudden the coal trains have to stop. The workers can't get into the coal terminal, you know, because there's two brave people sitting on, on the line attached to a big barrel. Um, and there's also a bunch of supporters um, standing by the road, you know, there to cheer out and to, to make sure everything's going well. Um, and I heard that there was, um, yeah, supporters by the road holding signs talking about the fires. And, you know, being central Queensland, being a place where pretty much all of the newspapers are, you know, owned by, um, you know, their Murdoch newspapers, as Jenko was saying before, um, often these newspapers engage in climate change denial and aren't really talking about climate change. But because of and, and so that means that often there's a lot of people that are quite negative to these sort of actions and these sort of like climate change protesters, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes and all of that. And so a lot of the protesters up there say that often, you know, there's a lot of swearing out of car doors as well as a few honks of support. Um, but at this particular action, because the fires were going on and because the banners were talking about the fires, that there was a lot more support um, mm. than there has been pre previously. Um, you know, more support than, you know, the classic get a job, misguided comments. And so... Like, to me, that was really kind of exciting. And we're talking about, like, a turning point for these fires and people pushing back against, you know, newspapers that, you know, you know uh, engaging in climate change denial and that these people in Queensland watching this happen and watching, you know, can often for some people seem quite extreme to sit in front of a coal train, um, but they were more likely to support it now and are more, yeah, getting on board climate change. I thought that was quite exciting and you know, direct action is about stopping what we believe is unjust, but it, you know, also has this secondary effect of creating such a story um, and getting the message out there so clearly because, um, so yeah, well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing stuff and really inspiring and it's really cool um, to see, um, yeah, just people putting themselves out there and, and um, putting themselves in a position where, um, you know, two people alone can stop a giant, like, you know, half kilometer long coal train um, from entering a coal port. Like, um, yeah, to hear about stories like that, it's it's really inspiring. And I'm hoping that the viewers are also inspired by that because, um, you know, if that's what two people can do, imagine what, like, you know, hundreds or thousands of us could do um, if we decided mm -hmm. to, to, to for the community to come together and say, no, actually – um, you know, this is enough. Like, you know, we can't continue down this road anymore. And it sounds, you know, really inspiring to hear what Anissa was saying, like the actual community, you know, you know, actually giving support as they drove past, particularly in, you know, in that, in that part of the country where it is more conservative, like that, that's showing like a changing of the tide. And, um, yeah, it is really inspiring. And yeah, I'd love to hear like your thoughts, you know, in general, like, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I think with like worsening, environmental um, outcomes also I think it's really illuminating that lawful protest isn't um, putting pressure on business as usual enough and I think that's the main draw that people have to direct action um, particularly because like the state has like a certain amount of leeway in terms that it, it can like absorb a certain amount of disruption like a protest um, and it operates as per usual and it's usually like highly regulated. Um, but I feel like 
perhaps with like the impacts of climate change and the continuation of business as usual being so palpable and felt by people across the nation also um i think people are realizing that it's it is really important to send like that clear message and to just like be direct with their action um and maybe that is also reflective of like the greater um empathy that was seen at that action in particular um yeah yeah. Absolutely. And it's also important to, to note from like my understanding is like these, there are safeguards in this train system that this wasn't a dangerous thing that you mm. were taking part in. Like the trains weren't stopping right in front of you. They get yeah, warning, no. you know, when they know someone's on the track, they're, they're warned well ahead, like kilometers away from the site and they're, they're, the trains are stopped well before there. So, totally. um, yeah. So good to note that, yeah, you, you, you know, at no point are you actually in any danger and that's, that's yeah, important. no, not at all. It's, it's really like regulated didn't feel unsafe for a second um it's just kind of using um the regulations around it to like to use against it really for sure well just uh, wanted to point out as well you were saying that the uh, avenues of legal protest are getting narrow and indeed they are following the imark protests mm-hmm. uh, uh scott morrison's government obviously famously uh tried to implement uh policies to make it illegal for secondary boycotts so even that to yeah. democratically use your own money in a capitalist system um is well you know it's actually you know legally impossible for them to to implement something like that but they were even trying to crack down on that mm. um which which surprised me as well so these avenues for protest legal or otherwise are getting narrower and narrower anyway yeah well australia's democracy status got downgraded from open to narrowed just following IMARC, I'm sure that was like a part of it. And yeah, it just testifies to the increasing authoritarianism we're seeing um, in this time where people do want to like manifest the reality that they want to see, whether that be post-extractivist um, or something else right now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, what we'll do real quickly um, is just go to a... Um, a community uh, announcement. So we'll go through that really quickly. And um, yeah, just really wanted to like thank, you know, Elle for sharing that story. It was really inspiring to hear you guys going out there and doing some amazing stuff um, and your bit for for mitigating climate change and um, bringing awareness to this important issue. Um, yeah, we'll come back and we'll talk real briefly after the um, the message. But um, yeah, here here's, uh, here's another community message from uh, 855-3CR. Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kulta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. The old crocodile lizard, I really know. The mining company gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. 
a 3CR supporter. Um, and you are listening to 3CR, that's 855 on your AM dial. Um, that was an exciting announcement talking about another, well, this one's a protestable, so protest and festival. Um, so, yeah, make sure to look up Lizard's Revenge on Facebook and the Internet is another exciting way to find communities and find ways to fight back against this destructive system. Um, and before we just heard from Elle about some inspiring stories in central Queensland to, you know, stop more coal getting extracted from this country and fighting back against the construction of the Adani Carmichael mine. And if anybody's interested to hear more about what's happening in central Queensland or potentially ways that you could make your way up to the amazing community up there that's been fighting against the construction of the Adani Carmichael mine for the past two and a half years, I think, um, then go to frontlineaction.org um, and you'll find all the ways about how to get up to camp. Uh, it's an amazing place. And also look up Frontline Action on Coal on Facebook and Twitter and all of those to get more updates about, you know, the amazing creative things that people like Elle and others are doing to slow down the construction of that mine and, you know, show the world that we are not okay with this, you know, this horrible mine and any more coal mines happening and we do not want another fire season like that. So now is the time to act. Absolutely. And uh, act we will. Um, so, yeah, so that was um, our show for... Um, for February. Um, yeah, really glad to be back, um, you know, on 3CR after our little summer break that we had. Um, you know, please tune in again. We'll be, you know, the sewer show is on every uh, Friday, but um, me and Nisa will be hosting again the Doing It Ourselves crew, um, potentially with Jenko again. Um, next, and maybe even Elle. And maybe even Elle. <laughs> um, yeah, on our next show, which will be, uh, you know, four weeks from now, um, coming in March. So, um, yeah, just really wanted to thank you for coming in. It was really, really amazing to to hear your stories and your contributions to to all this stuff. Um, yeah, all for all listeners, please, um, yeah, please follow that stuff up. You know, go to Frontline Action on Cole's website. Um, go to the Facebook. Find out all that cool information. Uh, if you want to be empowered and be part of a community, because like El brought it up, also a part of of um, you know activist kind of um, you know uh, theories of change is to create a alternate community that like challenges these current structures and uh, you know for me i've seen no better place than to um, engage with that community and start those communities um than within direct action communities um so yeah reach out and check that out it's amazing stuff you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to all the w's.3cr.org.au